chapter 15. And as you're turning there, you may have noticed a little card on your seat. Uh, that is for an event coming up at the beginning of November called Friends and Family Day. And so we're very excited about it as just an opportunity to kind of gather together our church, but also our community to celebrate uh, in the fall and have a good time together. Hopefully by then the weather will cool down a little bit. Even this morning was a little nicer. I don't know if you noticed that. So by November, uh, the Lord will bless us with cooler weather, hopefully, and uh, we'll have a great time together. But it'll be right after church. Right after church, we'll have food and, and some fun. It'll be right on the lawn out here. So if you want to invite folks, uh, whether your coworkers or friends or family, we would love to have them celebrate with us. Just a time to be together as a church, okay? So you can take that card, invite some folks. We would love to have uh, your people be with us. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're going to look at the majority of the chapter, but we're only going to read verses 1 through 14. 1 through 14 is what we'll read together, and then we'll cover the rest as we go. Hear the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, a four-letter word, a four-letter word. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, this morning for your gift of, of your word. What a gift that you are the God who has spoken to us. You've spoken to us in your word. You've spoken to us in your son, Jesus. And so today we pray you would speak again by your spirit. Help us to listen, to listen and obey what you say to us, Lord, as you are speaking words of life words of gracious life that transform us from the inside out. We pray, Lord, that we would give you the glory for it as you change us into your image. We pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, long before there was Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer, there was the horse whisperer. And his name is Monty Roberts. And Monty Roberts was raised in the horse business. He was raised around uh, you know, training up horses. And, and when he was in the business as a child and as a young adult, he was told that the only way to train a horse is to what's called break them. Right? Maybe you've heard that term before. The only way in, in, in his experience to train a horse was to break them, to, to break them down emotionally and then build them back up with some sort of obedience through that process. And so as he began to work through that and, and he got more familiar with the business and, and the techniques and, and his own personality, he realized he didn't really like that very much. He didn't really like breaking these horses, and so he started to look into some other options, some other ways to train a horse that didn't require breaking them. And so as he began to study their nonverbal communication, because they're horses, he began to realize that there was some communication happening, that there was a way that they were relating to him. And so he began to uh, study that and realize there was a way to get them to communicate and, and, and to have this experience. And so he, he started to call it hooking on rather than breaking down. Hooking on rather than breaking down. Now, I know nothing about training horses, so I'm not going to stand up here and tell you I know how it works. But somehow, somehow he created an environment that made the horse feel safe. And that was the concept that he came up with, was he created an environment that made the horse feel safe to the point that the horse, instead of needing to be broken down, was now willing to have a relationship with his, his trainer. And so this is how it's worked. I mean, it's a beautiful work of art. You can, you can actually watch this guy on the internet. It, it, there's videos of him doing this, but he'll come into the horse pen where the horse is, and this is an untamed horse, ne never been ridden before, never had a saddle on it before, and in 30 minutes he'll be riding the horse. And so you can almost see it happening, like the horse is looking at him with this nonverbal communication, looking as if there's something about this person that, that makes me want to follow them. There's something about this person that makes me say, where is he going? Where is she going? I want to go with them. And then they do. It's incredible. In other words, what happens is rather than being forced into obedience... They're loved into obedience. They are loved into obedience. Now, here's the four-letter word. Obey is a four-letter word. And if you're not familiar with that term or that phrase, it, it is used for something that's not necessarily likable. right? A, a lot of people have a hard time with this word, obey. In fact, many of us, we've been in situations, maybe it's uh, churches, maybe it's other organizations, or it's, your, it's the company you work for, or you've been in some kind of toxic environment where, where there is a sense that obedience was an abusive legalism. Right? You, you've been in environments where people, they, they manipulate, they strong arm, they're, they're trying to get you to do something that you don't really want to do, and so they force you into obedience, whether that thing is good or it's bad, it, but it was forced. And so your, your mind, your, your uh, association with the word obey is with this sense of abuse and harm. And, and I want to tell you right off the bat, as we go through this, that's wrong. right? That, that's wrong. 
abusive, legalistic obedience is not what the Bible is for. However, sometimes then it swings the other way, and because we've had bad experiences with obey or obedience, all, all, you know, all bets are off. We're, we're just free for all. No, there's no rules, there's no regulations, there's no right, there's no wrong, there, there's just kind of, it's, a, it's whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, whenever you want to do it, it's all up to you. Obedience is nothing. I just do what I feel, and I do what I like, and I do it how I want it. You've gone the other direction, where in the name of freedom, now it's not loving obedience, it's just some kind of corrupted love. And both of them are wrong. Listen, legalism and license both get obedience wrong. They get obedience wrong. Obe obedience or obey doesn't have to be a four-letter word. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Listen, the heart of Jesus for us, for his people, for all people is this. It's a loving obedience towards God. It's a loving obedience towards God. Now, I want to unpack that today. I want to look at what that means. So today we're continuing this series through the book of 1 Samuel. And in chapters 13 through 15, uh, basically we're watching the fall of King Saul. We're watching the dismantling of his life and his kingdom. And so last week in chapter 14, we looked at how Saul was on the side of legalism. Saul was, he, he was so legalistic and so full of fear that, that he decided he's going to tell all his soldiers they're not going to eat for the whole day until they conquer their enemy. And so everyone's wandering around burdened and ex exhausted and tired and they're trying to fight with no food. And, and so it's this mess where everyone's under a burden and we saw how that was rooted in fear. Right? And so that's chapter 14. We see him in this legalistic fear. Now it swings the other way, and now Saul is full of fearful license. He's given up on legalism, and now he's just going to do whatever he wants to do. And we see Saul is just like us. He doesn't know what to do with this word obey. He doesn't know what to do with this idea of obedience to the Lord. And so that's what I want to look at today, because the gospel makes obedience not only a priority, it makes it a possibility. It makes it a possibility. And so what does loving obedience look like? Uh, let's consider first the priority of obedience, the priority of obedience. If you're taking notes, that's the first point I want to look at today, the priority of obedience. The Lord speaks to Saul through Samuel in verse 2. Look at what it says. Pick up the story here. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Wow. Now let's back up for a second. There's a lot here to look at. The Amalekites, first of all, were, were old enemies of Israel. The Amalekites, when Israel was walking through uh, the wilderness, coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites came up against them and basically said, we're not going to help you, we're going to be against you. They opposed Israel and, and mistreated Israel and, and basically unjustly, unfairly treated them when they were in their moment of vulnerable need. 
And so God told the Amalekites back in, you know, hundreds of years before this, he said, there's going to come a day when justice will come for what you've done to my people. And now the day has come. I mean, this is hundreds of years later, and God comes to Samuel, and he says, tell Saul it's time to bring justice for what the Amalekites have done. And so this is not a random act of, of war. This is not something that Saul just had on his heart and decided he's going to attack somebody. This is God saying, I am bringing justice after hundreds of years of you refusing to repent. This is God saying, I am bringing justice and judgment for your sin that you've done against my people. He says, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. Everyone. I mean, this, this is hard for modern ears. This is hard for us to hear and, and immediately just think, why in the world would this happen? Now, I want to say, I want to pause here for a moment and, and just talk about that. Listen, first, it's hard, but it's not harsh. It's hard, but it's not harsh. In other words, God has a reason for this, a just reason for why he's bringing judgment and punishment on their people. Secondly, it's frightening, but it's not unfair. It's not unfair because this, this is a, a sense that God is bringing justice for their actual actions. This, and we're going to see that in a second. This is not random. This is specifically for what they have done. And so what's happening is we're watching God say, I'm not going to stand for injustice in this world. I'm not going to stand for evil in this world. It will go punished. In fact, this, what's happening is this is a small scene of God saying that, that uh, you know, the judgment that's coming for all of us is going to be treated with fullness and with justice. That, that's what this is saying. And so I want you to hear that because it's hard to hear. It, it's confusing and there's questions that we, can't, we don't have time to get into. But I want you to hear that the heart behind this is God saying, I am bringing justice for what has been done to my people. And so Saul gathers together an army. He gets 200,000 plus people together. They arrive at Amalek. And when he shows up, he tells the Kenites, which are this group of people that are also next to the Amalekites. He says, hey, we're about to wipe out all the Amalekites. This has nothing to do with you, so I would recommend you get out. Right? This is, again, the text saying that this isn't just a, a random act of, of war. This, this is God specifically bringing judgment on this people group. And so he tells the Kenites to leave. He says, you, you were merciful to us. You are not guilty of what's happened here. You can leave, but we're going to attack the Amalekites. And so they go in and they attack the Amalekites, and sure enough, they conquer this group of people. They bring God's judgment, but Saul and his army, listen, they almost obey. They almost obey. In fact, they, they destroy most of the Amalekites. They destroy most of what they have, except they save the king, Agag, and they save the best goods and all the best cattle and the best uh, animals. They, they save the best and get rid of everything else. They did most of what God said, but they didn't do all of what God said. They did most of what he said, but they took liberty with some of the things he said and said, okay, well, this makes sense. We'll do what God says here, but we're not going to do what God says over here. And so they took the liberty to kind of trim his words down to what made sense to them and what fit their desires. 
So the next morning, Samuel comes to visit Saul, and Saul's excited. Saul's like, let me tell you what we did. We did the command of the Lord. Let me, let me tell you about all the people we conquered, and look at all the stuff we have. We, we brought God's justice against the Amalekites. And Samuel doesn't respond the way Saul thinks he would. In verse 14, he says this, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? In other words, when Samuel hears the sheep, he hears sin. Samuel, Samuel hears the sheep and he knows immediately that Saul didn't listen to everything that God said to do. Because God said to wipe out everything. The whole, uh, the whole group, all the people, all their stuff, all their animals, everything needs to be gone. So why do I hear these sheep if you did what the, what the Lord commanded you to do? Saul picks up, this is not good. So he, he, starts to, he starts to make his case. He says, wait, 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 we can, we can offer it to the Lord, right? We, we can hold a worship service, and it'll be a great worship service because we'll have the best sacrifices, and we'll have the best animals, and it'll be a great feast to the Lord. Trust me, this is going to be great. And then Samuel, again, rebukes him, and probably the most famous line in this story in verse 22, he says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, rituals don't replace the call to obey. They don't replace the call to obey. In fact, partial obedience is still disobedience. Partial obedience is still disobedience. And, and to put it another way, the, the fruit of faith is a full obedience. It's a full obedience. Now, let me, let me stop there for a second, because some of you, I'm sure, have questions at this point. Listen to this. Obedience is the outworking of our faith. And so the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he says this. He, he tells the church in Rome, he's writing a letter to the Roman Christians. He tells them the goal of their life, the goal that he has, that God has for their life is this in Romans chapter 1. He says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among the nations. Now, wait a minute. The, the obedience of faith? What, what does that even mean? If you've been a Christian for some time, you've probably heard the word faith. You've, you've probably understood that faith means to, to basically do nothing. You're basically resting in God. You're, you're basically saying, I'm going to trust in you, in you alone, not in what I do, but in what you've done. And so it sounds like it's, it's contradictory. How can faith have an obedience? Well, what Paul is saying agrees with all the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament. In fact, Paul agrees with what James says in James chapter 2. James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Faith apart from works is dead. Right? What James is saying and what Paul is saying are the same thing. He's saying this faith, if it's real, it's going to have an outworking of works. It's going to have an obedience that comes from it. It's what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this. He says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can Jesus really mean that? Jesus' standard for our life is perfect obedience? I mean, if that doesn't make you uncomfortable, 
I'm not sure if you heard me. Jesus intentionally is trying to make you feel uncomfortable, to feel the weight of what that means. The, the standard God has for your life is not, I, I do a good job from nine to five and I provide for my family or I take care of my kids or I'm nice to my roommate in college or I've done some good things as a volunteer and, and the rest of it is okay because it doesn't really matter as long as I'm okay and I'm good. Jesus is saying, my standard for your life, the, the Father's standard for you is himself. It's perfect obedience. I mean, think about that. Let, let that sink in for a moment. The biblical standard for all of life, from, from the start to the finish of the Bible, is full obedience to God. And our constant temptation is to trim the edges. Is to trim the edges. Now, we, we rarely outright reject God. I mean, especially if you call yourself a Christian or you've been a Christian a while, you're, you're probably not going to outright reject God and say, God, I want nothing to do with you. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live my own life. But what we do instead is we round the corners. We, we trim the things that we don't think are necessary. We, we cut the corners that, that we don't think are, are really what's best for us. So we, we trim the corners that, that are, are God's standard for, for our words and our relationships. We trim the standards that God has for us in, in our sexuality and our relationships. We trim the standards that God has for us in our, in our money and our generosity. We, we trim the standards in, in the standards that God has for us in, in how we relate to our enemies. Whatever it is in your life, we start finding the corners that, that don't really fit with what we like and what we prefer. And so you got to ask yourself before we move on, and, and we'll deal with this in a minute, but i, I got to ask this. Where are you trimming God's authority with your partial obedience? That's a hard word. Where, where are you trimming God's authority in your life with partial obedience? See, some of us are so afraid of being legalisms that, or legalists that that just makes you cringe. Like there's, there's something in you that you're like, ah, I don't know about that. that. That sounds like legalism. And remember, last week when we looked at Saul, his legalism was rooted in fear. We're going to get to what happens here and how, how this license has happened. But, but there's something in us that we're so afraid of being legalists that we're uncomfortable with obedience. We're uncomfortable with it. We've kind of given ourselves a, a license to just sin. You know, we kind of hide behind these religious platitudes like, aren't we all sinners? Don't we all make mistakes? And absolutely, that's true. And that's part of the gospel is you've got to know you're a sinner. You've got to know the bad news before you can know the good news. But it doesn't erase the call, the standard of obedience. And so the, the, there's something in us that we, we're just uncomfortable with that. And so we'll hide behind these things. And, and the truth is we've, we've really disengaged a long time ago. We've stopped battling for obedience. We, we've stopped battling against sin in our life. There, there's something in us that has just kind of disconnected and we numb the, the issue with Netflix or social media or busyness or, or your job or whatever it is, but you, you just don't want to go there. What is that area? What is that area? But I want to ask, what, what keeps us from that? What keeps us from 
this full obedience. Let's look at the problem of disobedience. This is the second point, the problem of disobedience. Saul pleads his case again in verse 24. Look at what he says. It says, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, there's a progression here in Saul throughout the story. In verse 13, when, when he first comes to Samuel, he says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord, right? He was confident. I've done everything God told me to do. I've performed the commandment. And then in verse 24, or sorry, in verse 20, he says it again. He kind of double downs. He says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. But now that he's been exposed in, in, in later in the story by Samuel, in verse 24, he finally says, I've sinned. I've sinned. You're right, Samuel. Not only does Saul confess his sin, he confesses his reason. And this is what he says. He says, I feared the people. I feared the people. In other words, I, I feared the people and let their voice be louder than God's voice. So God's voice was now down here, shrunken and, and, and quiet and whispering, and theirs is loud with a megaphone and, and on a big banner. And, and what the people say is what I really cared about, Samuel. And so this is how it happened. It happened because I let their voice get louder. But here's the thing. It's actually still louder for Saul. Because this is what happens. He, he begs Samuel, okay, I've sinned. Now go back with me and let's make this right. And Samuel says, no, 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 I'm not going to go back with you. You're going to go back and I'm going the other way. And Saul says, no, 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 come with me. And so as Samuel is turning to leave, Saul reaches out and he grabs the corner of his, of his uh, robe and he tears it. And Samuel then turns around and he sees the torn robe and he says, just as this robe is torn, Saul, the kingdom is going to be torn from you. The kingdom is going to be torn from you. And so Saul, of course, he hears that and he pleads again in verse 30. He says this, I have sinned. He says it again. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. In other words, Saul is showing that he's still driven by this reputation. All he still cares about is not that he sinned against the Lord, but that the elders are going to judge him. That the elders are going to look at him and look at him differently. And so he, all he cares about is saving face and saving his reputation because the people's voice is still louder than God's voice. In fact, the same thing that led him to not obey is what keeps him from obeying later. The Lord is still, or, or the, the root is still alive. Disobedience, listen to this, disobedience is rooted in a disoriented fear. It's rooted in a disoriented fear. So for years, uh, you may have seen this show back in the day, the, the show called The Wide World of Sports on ABC. It's an older show and uh, it, was, it was a big hit back in the day, and, and they used to have this opening that was famous. And, the, and in the opening, uh, there was this part that was called The Agony of Defeat. And there was a, a clip, a, a little uh, video clip, that during this part of the opening, uh, there was a, a skier who's coming down a ski slope. And as he's coming down the ski slope, he's, he's, you know, everything looks normal, it looks fine, it looks like he's doing well, he's in good position, he's heading down the ski slope, and then all of a sudden, he just kind of falls off the side and, and tumbles down the hill, 
and, and you're, you're looking at it like, what, what in the world happened? And people would laugh at it and think about, oh, this is the agony of defeat. This is what it looks like to fail. But no one actually knew till later why that person skiing did that. And so what, what happened was, when you talked to him, he said, actually, I'm coming down the slope, and he's coming down too fast. The ground was too hard, he's coming down too fast, and as he's coming down the slope, if he goes too fast and he takes the jump, he's going to land past the safe area. And so if he's going too fast and, and goes past the safe area, it could become fatal. And so as he realizes, I'm going too fast, he has a decision to make. Am I going to take a risk and go over the, the jump and possibly die, or do I just fall off to the side? And if I fall off to the side, I'll probably have maybe a few minor injuries, but it's not going to be fatal. And so in that moment, he makes a decision, I'm going to fall to the side. And so it actually wasn't defeat. It was the fear of dying that kept him from jumping. In fact, he had this fear of the slope, this fear of going too high, this fear of jumping too far that was going to kill him that led him to make a good decision. He needed the right kind of fear to make the right decision. This, this is what Saul is, is struggling with right here. There's this disoriented fear, this fear that's being misplaced. It's, it's in the wrong direction, and where it is is people. And so people become bigger than God. People become up to this level where now what they say and what they do is more important than what God says and what he does. And I'll be honest with you, we don't, we don't typically call it sin, right? When we're, we, we have nicer words. When we're young, we call it peer pressure. When we're a little bit older, you know, we, we call it, uh, you know, it, it's just people pleasing. When, when we're in therapy, we call it codependency. You know, we have all kinds of names for it, but what the Bible calls it is actually the fear of man. And in the Bible, when you, t when you read about the fear of man, what the Bible is talking about is this, this idea that you've, you've uh, disoriented or, or misplaced your fears, where your fear was supposed to be on God, and now it's on people. And so Ed Welch, who's a counselor, he wrote a really great book called When People Are Big and God is Small. When People Are Big and God Is Small, it's a great book, it's a, it's a shorter book, but he, he basically has this one idea that he unpacks in, in different avenues. It's this idea. The fear of man is when your fear gets flipped, and now it ruins everything. Because now, instead of being afraid of God in a healthy way where God's voice is the loudest, where God's voice is the biggest, and he is the most important uh, voice in your life, now everyone else is. And what happens is we become approval addicts, right? We become approval addicts to the people at our job or the people in our house, or we become approval addicts of, of what people down the street think or, or what people on social media think or whatever it is. And now we're approval addicts, and it can happen even in the closest relationships in your life. It can even happen with a spouse or a best friend where, you know, you're supposed to have some sense of, of approval that's healthy, right? I mean, it's healthy to have the approval of your spouse, it's healthy to have an, the approval of your best friend, but when that happens and it becomes ultimate, and now their approval is the most important thing in your life, now it's become unhealthy. Now it's actually become sin, where God's voice has shrunk down and it's in a little box or you can't even hear it, and their voice is on a megaphone with a stage and every, everything they say is gospel truth. 
And what happens is it, it ruins you because what you think is that this is going to be the thing that, that gives me life. This is the thing that's going to help me. And in fact, it traps you because now I can't be honest because I'm afraid. I can't be vulnerable because I'm afraid. I can't actually love that person because I'm afraid of them. It's what Proverbs 29 says, says this, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. In other words, you, you think this is going to set you free. Once, once I finally get their approval, once, once I finally have them smiling at me and, and rejoicing over me and complimenting me and telling me how proud of me they are, I will finally be free. And then you realize I'm trapped because now I serve them. And really the fear of people is really the fear of shame. If, if my friends really knew who I was and how I was and what I was thinking and what I was doing, I couldn't deal with it. Or if they really knew your struggle with pornography, I couldn't handle it. If they really knew the, the, the doubts and the questions and the fears I have, I, I couldn't handle it. If they really knew what, what happened in my past because I haven't told my story, then I couldn't handle it. And so it's the shame that keeps us out of that. It keeps us trapped. It keeps us hidden because there's this powerful aspect to shame where now you want to pull out and go away and be by yourself and you don't want anyone to know. Is the fear of people ruling your life? Is it ruling and reigning over even God's voice? Because there's this, this disoriented fear that makes the promise of safety and it never delivers. So how do we overcome that? How, how do we overcome this fear of people and, and obey God fully by faith? Well, let's look at the possibility of obedience. This is the last point, and we'll close. The possibility of obedience. Look at verse 34. This is how the story of the scene ends here. It says, Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, after Saul is rejected and Samuel says, the kingdom is going to be torn from you, and we'll see what happens about that in the next chapter, it gets really dark. It gets really dark. Samuel decides he's going to finish the job because Saul didn't do it, and so he kills King Agag, and it's brutal. And then right after that, Saul, it says, was uh, you know, forced to leave, and he goes out by himself. He has no one else. And then right after that, it says that when Samuel hears about that, he starts grieving for Saul because now he knows Saul is going to lose the kingdom. Saul is all by himself. He's alone, and everything is ruined. And so he just grieves. And then to top off Samuel's grief, it says the Lord regrets that he ever made Saul king. Now, this is repeated from, uh, from verse 11. This is the second time it said it, that the Lord regretted he ever made him king. And to make it even more confusing, then in verse 29, it says that God will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, what in the world is going on? Does God regret it or does he not regret it? Can he regret or can he not regret? What is going on in this text? I think the narrator here is intentionally trying to just throw some curveballs at you to get you to, to sit on this for a moment and feel the complexity of this situation, to feel the weight of this. That, that word uh, in Hebrew, the, the verb that 
is translated regret here uh, means to sorrow or to breathe deeply. It could even be used to, to talk about repentance sometimes. And so some of the older translations say the Lord repented uh, here. But, uh, but it really means to have this deep sorrow, this emotional feeling of, of, of regret and, and, and deep breathing like, oh, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And so there's this paradox here, right, where you have the Lord saying as he sees Saul, I can't believe this happened. Oh. And so he feels, he feels the weight of this. He feels us, he sees us in our sin, and he grieves over it. He sorrowed over it. But at the same time, Samuel says, even though the Lord feels, and even though he sees, and even though he grieves, and he's full of sorrow, he never changes. So in one sense, he regrets because he feels, but in another sense, he doesn't regret because he never has to repent. He never has to turn the other way because he made a wrong decision. And so there's this tension in the text that God is both consistent and faithful and unchanging, and yet at the same time, he grieves over our sin and our brokenness. He's sad and sorrowful over the state of our souls. He, he looks at Saul and he says, Ah, oh, that's terrible. It's terrible. And so God feels deeply. In other words, indifference is not one of God's attributes. God is not sitting back coldly and, and just looking at it, and he doesn't feel anything. He doesn't care about it. He just says, oh, my plan's working perfectly. This is great. No, God has entered into it and grieving with us in the pain of the moment. Sorrowful and yet unchanged. And so Samuel tells uh, Saul that God is going to do something in his sorrow. He's going to move to, to save us in his sorrow. And in verse 28, this is what he says. He says, God will send one who is better than you. One who is better than you. I mean, you talk about good news that stings. Good news. I mean, could you imagine Saul hearing that? God is going to tear the kingdom from you. He's going to give it to someone, not someone who's worse than you, but someone who's better than you. In other words, Saul, you're, you're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not faithful enough. You're not righteous enough. You have failed, and I'm going to send someone who is better than you to save this kingdom. And in the short term, it's going to be David. It's going to be this young boy who could do nothing compared to Saul, and yet he was God's choice. I'm going to choose David. And, he, and, and listen, even this David, who will be a man after God's own heart, he's going to fail. He's going to fail because he has the same heart that is full of fear, just like you, Saul. And so even though he will be the one who's better than you and he's going to be anointed king, there's going to be one who's better than David. There's going to be a true and better David who's going to come, and one day he's going to be anointed king in a way that will last forever. Right? There's going to be one who's better than Saul, better than David, better than any other ruler or king, better than anyone else who's ever lived, because his obedience will be perfect obedience. His obedience will have no fear, no flaw. It will be perfect and perpetual for all eternity. And his name is Jesus. See, Jesus' obedience makes possible 
our obedience. That, that's how the gospel works. Jesus' obedience, it begins with his active obedience, and it goes to his passive obedience. In his active obedience, he chose to lovingly obey. From eternity past, he chose to incarnate with us, to take on human flesh, to live a life of full obedience in our place. He fully enjoyed his heavenly father. He fully honored every uh, image bearer. He fully preserved the life of others. He fully sought out the thriving of his enemies. He fully lived the truth in word and in deed. He fully rejoiced in all that came his way. In fact, he said to his disciples this. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' active obedience means that he earned for us a righteousness not our own. It means that he earned for us a record that we couldn't earn. It means that he obeyed in our place because we had failed to obey. And so Jesus' obedience, it earns an obedience that becomes our obedience. He obeys in our place, and it's his active obedience that then leads to his passive obedience. And just as he chose a loving life, he chooses a loving death in obedience. Jesus said about his life, he said, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down because I am obeying. His whole incarnation from conception to the cross was him laying down his life, laying down his life for our sins. He was laying it down as he washed feet. He was laying it down as he was mocked. He was laying it down as he was teaching our ignorance. He was laying it down as he was lied about from his enemies. He was laying it down as he was put on trial. He was laying it down as he was hung on a cross. He was laying it down all the way to his last breath. Jesus is laying it down in obedience, in perfect obedience. It's his active obedience and his passive obedience that makes possible our obedience. That's how the gospel works. Jesus is saying, I have come to live the life you couldn't live and die the death that you're supposed to die so that you could obey. So that you could obey. Jesus is the one who was better, and he wasn't just better, he was perfect. Perfect. And he says, this obedience that I'm offering to you is the obedience of faith. You catch the difference? It's not just an obedience, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do more, I'm going to try to improve my life, I'm going to come up with 10 steps of how I'm going to obey God this week. This is an obedience of faith. Jesus is saying, I've earned the obedience for you. I've actively lived out everything you're supposed to live out. I've passively suffered everything that you were supposed to suffer for your disobedience. But now, now I'm inviting you to believe. I'm inviting you into a life of faith that will transform the way you live. A life of faith where you are now abiding in Jesus, where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, but in me, in me, you can obey. In me, if you love me, if you keep my commandments, there, there is a transforming life that is for you, but it is by faith alone. It's only by faith. And so we come to Jesus because we haven't obeyed him. We come to Jesus every day, every hour, every minute because we haven't obeyed. But when we come to him, he gives us the power to now obey. He says, I put my spirit in you, and he's the Holy Spirit who makes you holy, who calls you to holiness, 
who empowers you for that holiness. So by my grace and by your faith in me, you are going to live differently. You can obey, but only in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful that you have loved us into obedience. You have loved us perfectly. You've loved us when we were barely lovable, when we were against you, reviling against you, persecuting you, hating you, running from you. And yet you still loved us. You loved us and obeyed your Father perfectly. And so, Lord, we ask today that you would continue to love us. Love us out of our disobedience. Love us out of our fears. Love us out of our addiction to approval. Love us out of our legalism and our license. That we can fully obey in the areas that we've given up on. In the areas that we've said that doesn't matter. In the areas that we're afraid to even talk about or notice. Oh, Lord, may your Holy Spirit work obedience in and through us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning.